Welcome to KidTech, a podcast series about the people behind the kids' digital media space. I'm your host, Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome. Uh, today, I'm in our London office with Bethany Kobe, who is CEO of Tech Will Save Us, educational toy business that has, I'm absolutely convinced, the most optimistic name in the entire industry. This is true. Bethany, welcome. Thank you. Um, can you describe Tech Will Save Us? Because we were just talking about this before you came on air and you sort of said, well, we're an educational toy business. Mm -hmm. But can you explain what that means? Yeah. So our, we have a really clear mission, which hasn't actually changed that much since we started. Um, we essentially help what we call future focused families with kids between the ages of four to ten have fun by building and making things with technology to basically get learning achievements and outcomes. So it's all about interaction, making engagement for families that care about the future, that are thinking about the future in some profound and important way. Future-focused families, mm -hmm. um, that's a brilliant acronym. Um, I'm going to definitely steal that. Excellent. Um, for <laughs> appropriately, the future. Um, you started Tech Will Save Us in 2012, I think. Yes, I mean, in our house, around our kitchen table with interns. Okay, but th these are the origin stories. Yes. These are what people want to know about. So how, why did you begin, first of all? So my background is in design. So product design, branding, innovation. Um, I was the creative director of a um, global branding uh, agency called Wolf Olins for a lot of my young career, working with Skype and General Electric, launching things like Product Red. Um, and my co-founder, his background is in physical computing, which is basically engineering for human interactions. So he's been building things with light and sensors and motors and voice for, God, 20 years now. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you take those two skills and combine them, it's kind of us in a box in a weird sort of way. But so I think you, you productized yourselves a little bit, but I think most importantly was our backgrounds in kind of education. So my mom owned a Montessori school for my whole life in mm. Los Angeles. So I grew up in this very progressive educational background that just seemed very normal, a very interactive, hands-on educational background. Um, and then Daniel has been teaching physical computing for 10 years or so in all kinds of ways. And we were very aware that education one is not moving fast enough to mm. keep up with the pace of technology. It's not preparing kids for a future where we don't know the tech, we don't know the problems, and we don't know what they will need skill-wise right. for that future, which is quite a daunting task. And then mm. couple that with, I had my first child, and I went to the toy department for the first time, maybe ever since I was a child. <laughs> and I was quite shocked at how old it felt. Mm. It didn't feel like it was introducing kids to this amazing world of technology that we are a part of in a way that's productive, expressive, creative. And so we did what crazy people do and we started a business. And so what, what when, when, when you were starting Tech Will Save Us in your kitchen, what was the problem you were going to solve first? Yeah. Or what, what specifically did you, where did you begin? Yeah, I mean, I think there were kind of two parts to it. One was... Ultimately, toys and, and, and that world is about playing. Mm. So how do we really tap into this idea of playing in a way that is fun, that isn't just I need to do this in order to get a job in the future. And on the other side was, as I think we can self-describe ourselves as future-focused, a future-focused family, 
you know, I was fundamentally concerned about, wow, what is this little human that I'm bringing in the world going to do in the future? You know, this is as the rise of AI is happening, as, you know, we have an energy crisis, as we have all these major challenges and major technology kind of uh, progressions. How is he going to interact in that world? Mm. And what's he going to do now that's going to kind of help him to see what that is? Right. Um, and so ultimately it was about how can we help kids and quite frankly their parents have mm. these learning opportunities and achievements while having fun, while playing. So kind of playing to learn and learning to play. Right. That was really where we started. I mean, just given that specific background, presumably the first product was more focused on the, the younger age bracket interestingly no oh, interestingly well, you really were a future focus right interestingly we started much more kind of well we started as a workshop business right. so we made our first product specifically to be hosted in a workshop hmm. so making in community how do you facilitate because making with technology wasn't happening at all right none of this existed stem wasn't even a word being described in any anywhere the education, the curriculum hadn't changed in the UK. There were very few governments talking about coding. I mean, none of this was really on the agenda when we started. Um, so we started by doing workshops, experiences. Mm. How can we get people together in a way that was really fun, collaborative, engaging? But rather than making cookies or making a bag or knitting, you're actually making something with technology. Right. That's how we started. Right. What that really gave us an understanding of was, one, that parents and kids really loved doing it mm. that whether it was cookies or you know a musical instrument for a kid it's just making right. it was the parent where the barrier was there they don't understand what this is and so what we moved from was this experience of a workshop to can we kitify that can we put that experience in a box and create a digital platform a space where you can get content, coding, community, resources, but that experience could happen anywhere, right. around a kitchen table, in a classroom, in a makerspace, in a field. That's essentially right. the evolution of workshop, product that can be used in a workshop to product that can be made, used, played with at home. Well, talk about the transition from workshop into product in a box. Yeah. Because that, that's, that's very non-trivial. Yeah, it's a huge transition, yeah. I mean, I, I think there were the triggers that caused the decision and then there was the actual building a team and a ability to build well, products. Let's talk about all of those. I mean, what, what were those triggers first? So the, the moving from a workshop business to a product business was a, this is not as scalable as we think this could be. Right. How do we create a experience, an ecosystem that can really reach as many young people as possible mm. and as many families as possible. Mm. And workshops for anyone that does experiences, it's super high touch. It's really, you know, intensive in terms mm. of time. Uh, how many sort of kids and parents did you come into the workshops early on? Yeah, I mean, we did, I think in the first couple of months, you know, our our kind of motto is kind of learning by doing, mm. like as a, as, a, as, a, as a group of entrepreneurs, that's what we do. Right. Um, I think we had 300 or something families mm. interact with us in the first couple of months just to get feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we quickly realized, I mean, it's fun and we still do experiences, oh, right, okay. but for a different reason. It's not the model of the business. Yeah. It's a way of interacting with our customers and our parents and our community and our users and to create these kinds of touch points mm -hmm. um, in a different way. So moving from that was really a decision around kind of scale mm. and, and how many people could we really reach with these kinds of skills. 
Um, so accessibility, really. I think moving from a experience business to a product business wasn't as big as I think maybe in some other businesses it might be because our products are ultimately experiences. It was about how do we lower the barrier of entry of that happening in a home environment with a young person guiding the experience. Mm -hmm. And that's where digital became really important. We could use digital technologies to take kids on a journey, to take right. their parents on a journey. But, but I mean, you were still moving into a, a manufacturing paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So, I mean, wh where did you begin? So we have an office in Hackney, which right. is where we started, which mm -hmm. was down the street from my house. Mm -hmm. We had a mini factory, we still have it, a mini factory there. Because we make kits, we were able to stay very close to manufacturing and mm. production early on. So you, you were manufacturing out of East Everything London. was wow. being shipped, even when we, I mean, some of our products that went to Target, you know, two years ago were shipped from Hackney. So we were able to stay very close to the manufacturing, mm. design, product development process, and we still do. We, that, I mean, that must be very unusual for a, a product company um, doing what you do to not be, you know, going straight to China initially. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's new for now, but wasn't new. Right. Like when you started businesses or kind of manufactured, when manufacturing still happened in other cities mm -hmm. in a more profound way, mm -hmm. that was still happening in lots of places. Mm -hmm. I think China is a part of our ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We absolutely use China now, but I think what keeping it close helped us to do is to really understand the end-to-end -end process right. from a cost perspective, from a quality perspective, from a time perspective. It meant that when we did go to China or other places for manufacturing, mm -hmm. we knew what we were benchmarking against because mm -hmm. we had kept it so close. Right. Um, so I think there was kind of learning in that. And then there was also like keeping overheads down, costs down, like sure. there were practical, you know, things that were actually very beneficial to us in doing that. Flights to Hackney are much cheaper than Shenzhen. Much cheaper, yeah. yeah. And what, what, like, I mean, on that, on that point, I mean, what was the, and I don't want to skip too far mm -hmm. forward too quickly, what was the, the, the volume level or at what point did you shift some of your manufacturing? Do, do you manufacture all now in China or is it some of it still in London? We, or how do you... We are in the process of transitioning pretty much almost everything to China right, right. now, but we do about, I think about 70% in China now. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and at what point along the journey did that happen? Yeah, so um, the first product we produced in China was this product, which is our creative coder kit. Right. It's a wearable that kids build themselves and then program eight rainbow lights, a motion sensor and a compass to invent games that respond to movement. Right. The decision to go to China with this product was twofold. One, it was going to involve manufacturing techniques that mm -hmm. actually were more suitable for Chinese manufacturers. So things like injection molding, etc. Right. Um, the other thing was, is we really wanted to explore because we now had distribution that was wider. Mm. We wanted to really start to build up our supply chain, our logistic capabilities. We had um, appointed fulfillment centers in the US and the UK. So there were kind of two reasons why going to China was was a good st step for us. Right. Um, and that was a great experience. I mean, thank goodness we had good partners. We did a good audit of all of the partners. Um, and we actually still work with the partners that we started with on this product. Mm -hmm. So they've grown with us, which was an important part of that decision. Um, so some of it was about um, manufacturing techniques mm -hmm. and making sure we could keep quality and control around design and the experience like very tight. Now, 
it's about scale. So certain mm-hmm. products have reached a certain threshold um, and we know that we have product market fit with them. We can evolve them and move them into China. And right. and some products, we know from the moment we start that they're going to have product market fit ultimately or that right. there's enough appetite yeah, yeah. that we can go straight to China. So those are the kinds of decisions that kind of led I, us to that. And I, I want to come back to some of those, I mean, particularly around the, the, the deal that you've done with, with, uh, with Disney and Marvel. Yeah. But um, going back in time again, I mean, the first product that went out, you were selling directly from your own site, or how did how did you think about distribution? Yeah. I mean, in a world, I mean, in, this was so the first product was you in, shipped was in twenty thirteen. Yeah, twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. Yeah. So yeah. you you were coming into a, a what is a very traditional industry, yeah. the toy sector. Yeah. Um, taking an approach that was about as far removed from the traditional toy clothes as you can imagine. Yeah. I don't know if Hasbro or Lego manufacture anything in Hackney. Um, Probably not. <laughs> and, and, and so how, how did you go to market? Yeah, um, so the first, I mean, the first uh, kind of sales were definitely direct through our own channels. Mm. Um, and we also had a partner, which was Rough Trade East, the... Um, independent music store in um, so you Camden. Just, you distributed through music stores. So wow. what was interesting is um, Wired had written an article about us like very early on. I mean, this is like a photograph in my house of our mm. products on a display, right? And a backdrop is ultimately like my my living room. Right. Um, and the owner of Rough Trade East contacted us and said, I love what you're doing. This really reminds me of like the punk movement and what happened in like music and people really getting hands on with things. Mm. Can I help? And so we met with him. He gave us the front of Rough Trade East for a year. We built um, a mini workshop space slash kind of storefront. And we sold physical products there, hosted workshops, and then sold through our direct channel. Hmm. So it was very, you know, kind of cottage industry when we first started selling. DIY music meets DIY toy, right? It just, it, it, there was already DIY happening there. So right, there was a right, kind of sure. captive audience, whereas mm-hmm. DIY toy was much farther away at that point. Yeah. Um, the transition from that to a more mainstream audience um, we started more with science museums, design museums, um, what we call kind of specialty and iconic stores, MoMA Design Store, the London Design Museum, um, uh, Selfridges, places where there's kind of iconic newness and mm. really started to learn about the industry. And then gradually we moved into department stores. So John Lewis, Nordstrom, Barnes & Noble, and then gradually then again into kind of mass retail, so Target, Best Buy, etc. And so what was the point that you moved from the UK into the US market? I mean, as any digital business will be from the moment they launch. So we you were, were getting, so what so immediately when you went live or very soon after you were getting inbound from the US. Yeah, and at the beginning there was, you know, this thing happening around in the US that was much more concentrated in the US around the maker movement. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stuff happening around that. You know, it is ultimately the foundations of all of our businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of people getting hands on and building in these amazing creations that, you know, make magazine and Dale Daugherty and like all mm-hmm. that you know, we're standing on the shoulders of all of that. Right. We've just brought that into a accessible, not 40-year-old guys in their shed making stuff, right? <laughs> We've brought this into the home, into moms that have, you know, kids and are trying to really help their kids to progress. And, and is, is that the core customer? Moms more so than dads? So we have a mix, um, mm. but we have more moms than dads. Really? Yeah, which is, I don't have data on this, but I think quite unique in our space in particular. 
Um, but did you say that as if it still surprises you a little bit now? Um, no, it doesn't surprise me now. I think it's important to us now mm. that we create accessible products that do not lead with tech. They lead with what you can do with the tech. And mm. therefore, the barrier to understanding what it is and how your kid might do it and what the learning is, is, we hope, as accessible as it can be so that it doesn't have to resort to a kind of, I don't know how to do this and so I'm going to fail, so someone else is going to do it, or just interesting to techie dads, basically. So, I mean, your marketing must have evolved. Your marketing messaging must have evolved around that over the last... Everything has evolved. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean... But I, but I just, like, instinctively, and, and, and it's probably an, just a gender bias, I wouldn't mm. have thought that moms would have would have picked mm. it up. The way you describe it makes it sound completely intuitive. Yeah. But I'm just curious how your messaging and sort of product position has, has evolved with that realization over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think a few things. I think there's several things, and I think we're still on that journey. Mm. I think... Um, I think at the beginning, and I can only speak for ourselves, I think at the beginning we were a very product-focused business, right? Like we were really focused on like, can we make great products? Can we have these manufacturing techniques? Can right. we really create things for kids that they're going to be engaged and have repeat play and learn these really important skills? I think where we've really grown is not ignoring that or stopping that, but becoming a much more customer-centric business where we're listening to moms and dads and where we're really asking moms and dads what their barriers are, what their fears are, what they need. Mm. You know, ultimately, a lot of toy businesses don't talk to me as a parent. Mm. They don't interact with me at all, in, in fact. Um, it feels like these things come out that have been invented and they're supposed to be like the greatest, most amazing thing, but I don't know how they relate to me and my family and what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to get Ash to do. And so I think how we've evolved from a messaging, communication, experience perspective is just being much closer to our customer mm -hmm. which is moms and dads but mm -hmm. moms make up a majority of our purchasers so really understanding like what are their needs right now what resources do they need where are they getting information what are their fears around technology mm -hmm. what are the things that they really are worried about their kids knowing and understanding and how can that inform not just messaging but kind of content resources products that we create that's what's evolved which is not a small feet as you might imagine sure and, and is there any sort of socioeconomic bias in, in, in terms of the customer base yeah I mean we have you know educated parents mm. that um, live in mainly urban centers but mm. when I say urban centers that's everything from you know Atlanta to Minneapolis to you know major cities in Tennessee so it's not sure. yeah, yeah. necessarily New York and San Francisco mm -hmm. um, it's a very wide kind of range of but it definitely is educated parents um, it definitely is a mindset in terms of, you know, future focused family is 100% parents that are engaged in their kids' lives. Mm. They are doing things in their lives. Um, they're curating technology in their kids' lives. Um, they're not necessarily, and, and this is not a value judgment at all, they are worried about screen time. They're mm. thinking about, you know, how much their kids do in terms of school. They're they're engaged. Right. And I don't know that that necessarily means they come from a particular socioeconomic background. Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a way of parenting, a way of being engaged in your kids' lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, from a distribution perspective, um, I mean, you mentioned sort of the, the quite the roster of retailers mm -hmm. earlier on. Um, how does that look across the US? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, who are your big partners there? 
Yeah, so we um, were just starting to work with um, independents on the East Coast and West Coast. So mm-hmm. a whole collection of independent kind of toy, mm-hmm. um, department stores, et cetera, which we're actually very excited about. Um, then we're in kind of mass retailers like mm-hmm. Target and Best Buy. Um, we're in places like Nordstrom, Barnes & Noble. Um, and then we also have um, uh, across the U.S. We also are looking at some kind of different channels as well, like kind of craft, mm-hmm. which is actually, a you know, we, we've been told this often that our products feel like kind of 21st century craft. I, I was going to ask, I mean, mm-hmm. how do retailers perceive your product? I mean, do... Do they see it as toy? Do they see it as STEM? I guess some of them are calling it craft. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's improved in terms of retailers' understanding of the space, mm. mainly because I think they've tried it now for a few years mm. and are making more sense of it. And some better than others, as you might imagine. Um, it tends to either live in toy or in kind of a gaming technology space within, mm. a, within a mass retail right. environment. In a smaller independent or multi-door environment, it lives within the toy space, right? Mm. But that can include almost anything from mm. craft to puzzles to, you know, it is about play and it's about learning or it's just about pure play. It's slightly less um, uh, structured in terms of like, there's much more, um, uh, uh, what is the word? Uh, staff on on call to like explain a product, take you through a product. Whereas right. when you go to a major retailer, that's not always the case. But does that also mean that I suppose STEM products in mm. general are, are better suited to physical retail than somewhere like Amazon? No, not necessarily at all. Okay. Amazon's a huge channel for us. Right. Marketplaces are a great channel for us. But they don't they don't have the same physical experience. But a lot of people go to Amazon to search for things. So okay. they might see something in a retailer, they might play with it in a retailer, or they might see it on Amazon and then go to a retailer and buy mm. it at a retailer. I mm. think that journey of purchase is so vastly different than mm. it used to be. I mean, Amazon, what's the second largest search engine in the world now? Sure. That's a huge place for people to find and discover now. Mm. Um, so that's a really important channel for us. So it sounds like your, your strategy is, is, is sort of, uh, I mean, almost sort of saturation type distribution in terms of both small and big. Yeah, I think what we've learned over the last few years is the most important thing is to be where our customers are. Mm-hmm. And our customers are buying from small local toy environments. They're buying from mass retail because it's convenient. They're there to buy other things as well. And they're buying from marketplaces. That is 100% the journey of buying toy. Um, What's really important is that we have accessibility built into our propositions as a product into our pricing mm. so that they can live in those different channels. And what, what are the price points of the products? So our products range from 15 to 100 pounds. So mm. they are a, a spread mm. um, and intentionally so because different times of year for different kinds of events and activities, you need different price points. And in the, the Toys R Us um, bankruptcy last yeah. year hit you guys? So fun. Yeah, yeah. I think you're being a little sarcastic. (laughs) Just a little. Um, Well, the good news is that we weren't in Toys R Us. (laughs) So it hurt us uh, in a different way than Mm. it would have if we were 
<laughs> heavily stocked across all stores. Rather than bringing up pain points, um, I mean, how how do you see other companies similar to your size reconfiguring their retail strategy? I mean, is, yeah. is that, was that one of the reasons you're going to more smaller retailers as well? Is that um, a, a little bit, yes. Mm-hmm. I think there was an opportunity that was created by Toys R Us actually going out of business that meant that smaller independents saw this as an opportunity to fill a gap. And so did the big mass retailers, you know, Target, Best Buy and Walmart Mm. jumped super fast and said, great, we're going to take market share of what's Mm. there and we're going to do it. Some did it well, some didn't, but it definitely created space, Mm. which is good. And who, which retailer do you feel has the best grasp of STEM Mm. products? That's a good question. Um, I think that, so I don't think I can name one because I think that each has changed their strategy kind of every year, mm. whether it be changing in placement or changing in, you know, allowing POS and different kinds of things on shelf to explain the narrative. Right. I, so I can't name one, but I think those that have understood that these kinds of products need narratives mm-hmm. connected to them mm. have seen far better sell through and far better traction in the category than those that expect to put it on a shelf next to something familiar and see the exact same kind of sell through. Mm -hmm. Um, So those that see this as a growing category that's not going anywhere, Mm -hmm. that requires the same kind of communication as the smart home did. You know, people put nests on shelves for years and sold none because no one knew what it was. No one knew how to use it. No one knew how to install it. It needed explanation and a journey, some education. And so are there now dedicated STEM buyers in, yeah. in most retailers? Yeah, so Target, mm-hmm. Best Buy, they all have dedicated STEM buyers. And what, I mean, when you think, do you think about sort of the, the STEM market as, as a coherent market, sort of an addressable market mm, in terms of, of, of dollar size? Or do you think of it as a subset of toy? Or I'm curious, like when, when you talk yeah. to investors, and they ask the, the the inevitable addressable audience question. Yeah. How do you talk about that? I mean, interestingly, I think this is another thing that we've learned to understand as we've grown and as the industry has grown. I think there is an addressable STEM market, absolutely, mm. but it's really fragmented and it's really full of lots of different kinds of things, self-proclaiming right. as STEM. Um, we see more the education toy space as the market. Mm-hmm. Because I think when our customer is making a decision, then, you know, in all honesty, most customers don't even know we exist. They don't know Little Bits exist. They don't know Cano exists. They right, don't know right. half of the amazing businesses in this space exist. They're making decisions between, am I going to buy a Lego set for the birthday party or am I going to buy, you know, the the Gravitrax for, you know, right. my, my son? They're making decisions around... I want to buy something that's enriching. I want to buy something that's engaging. I want to buy something potentially that does have tech involved in it, but in a way that I feel good about. Mm. So it's not our competitors, as we might say, just like the startups in this space. It's actually a much bigger decision. Mm. So when we think about adjustable market, we think about the education toy space more than we just think about STEM as a category. And how do the big, I mean, you mentioned Lego. How do the, how are the big toy companies thinking about this? Mm. I mean, I've, I mean, uh, we first met a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I've been sort of looking at this space for a little while, and I've always expected the big toy coast to come in and start acquiring. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah. Are, are they waiting for it to get bigger? Do they not understand it? How do you think, like, the Mattels and Hasbro's and, and Spin Masters? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think 
I mean, it hasn't been that long, right, since the space self-identified as STEM. Mm. I mean, I would say it's only been three years or four years, really, because that word wasn't being used. There right. was no dedicated buyer at Target until two, two and a half, three years ago. Right. So I don't think it's been that long in terms of this a, a category definition in right. some capacity. There's been businesses around for longer, but mm-hmm. the category itself, the market's awareness is relatively new still. Um, in terms of the big uh, kind of toy businesses, I know all of them are exploring products in this space. Some have released products in this space. I mean, there's been like Caterpillar and all these other kinds of products. Some of them have been successful, right. others not so much. Um, and they're all talking to all of us, I imagine, <laughs> or I know that we have. Um, and I think they're all looking at it differently. Because they're all vastly different businesses. Like Lego and Spin Master are almost incomparable as organizations. Mm-hmm. Their values are different. Their reasons for existing are different. Everything is different. So they're going to invest, create, and do everything in this space differently. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good, actually. Because mm-hmm. I think it will mean that they choose the things that they're best suited, I hope, best suited to actually support, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those... I, I'm just bringing those two up as examples, but sure. I mean, they are vastly different kinds of organizations. I mean, do, do you think they are, some of the big toy companies have become too big to innovate in new sectors like this? I mean, when you see sort of the, some of the challenges that the public companies in particular have had. Yeah. Um, I think some parts of this space are complex for businesses of that scale to do quickly. Mm. There are new technologies and new ways of interacting with play that for a business of that scale to do at any speed that makes sense for the market Mm. would be very challenging. Mm. Um, Product development takes a very long time in those businesses. I mean, we develop products within four months to a year. So we have super quick for some of our products, super quick. I mean, that's about, what, half the time of a, of a big, big Yeah, program, so right? we can develop products quickly um, and efficiently. So I think from a timing perspective, yes. I also think, again, this customer thing keeps coming up for me. I don't think, you know, historically, big toy businesses' customers are retailers. Mm. They're not They're not me. They're yeah. the retailer. That's a blanket statement, I know, but generally it is. I think for businesses like us, and I can only speak for us, like our customer is not the retailer. Our customer is the mom, the dad, the kids, and having a relationship with the customer. And because our product is digital and physical, we can actually do that. We can take them on a journey on a, you know, go through curriculum to learn lots of different things, have new products to help your kid do new things. The fact that you buy it at Amazon or Target is kind of irrelevant almost. It doesn't matter where you buy it you're doing a tech will save us experience. That's the most important part of it. And uh, I mean, given your, your the dual audience nature mm. um, of the products, how do you do product development? Yeah. I mean, and, and particularly today as you get bigger. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of that we've developed is our product development process. It's been a journey to get there. Um, so we, you know, we had a kind of product development process when we first started. Um, it's always been very user-centered, probably just because of my background mm. and design being a really kind of core part of what my skill set is. Um, so we've always designed with kids a part of the process, but we've codified that process um, quite significantly over the years. 
So it's a mix of sprints and gates where we do very quick iterative development processes. We get to a gate, which is where we make commercial and experiential and learning decisions in a process. And if we don't pass that gate, and this is a multi-stakeholder process, it has sales, it has marketing, it has a product, it has digital involved in the whole process. Um, if we don't agree on that we've achieved those outcomes mm. in a gate, we cycle back. Mm. And it means that the idea is that we funnel things through and nothing gets to market that hasn't achieved the commercial requirements. We're not launching something that has not hit our target margin, has not hit our price point. We're not launching something that isn't the experience that we feel is engaging. And we're not launching something where we don't think the learning outcomes are clear. So that process is really iterated and it's it's awesome. Like I, I love it. I mean, it's complicated because there's mm. people involved in it, but it's fantastic. And then there are kids testing at every stage of that process. Mm. We have a group of young people called the Future Inventors Club, which is a group of thousands of kids that participate in product development. So it's, and it started very informal. It was mm. like, you know, super fans that kids would participate. And now it's this network that we can reach out to and say, we're doing tests around this kind of skill set for this age group. They're going to be in these locations. Sign up now, basically. Um, and again, everyone in this industry, there's nothing like an eight-year-old telling you something's boring for you to <laughs> rethink what you thought was fantastic. They tend not to hold back no. opinions. Um, you recently announced a deal with uh, Disney and then specifically with Marvel yeah. um, to work on co-branded or licensed products with mm -hmm. them. Can you talk about that? Because again, that, that seems to be sort of a, like a very distinctive new strategy. Um, so how did it come about? Yeah, so I, we, you know, we're an experience business. We're not a character business. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of doing partnerships that could help us to be even more accessible for as many kids as possible has always been on the agenda. Um, and why wouldn't we do that with businesses who have values that are similar, that tell narratives that are great and that are, you know, understood and loved by hundreds of thousands of kids. So the Disney relationship happened really, it was really interesting actually. Um, one of the kind of lead people in the licensing team bought one of our kits at John Lewis. They sent us an email. They said they were really excited about what we were doing. They invited us in for a chat. So it was one of those great emails to receive. Um, we built up a relationship with them over the course of a couple of months, met lots of different people from all aspects of Disney, from licensing to Maker Studio. I mean, it was great. We had so much access and so much support because yeah. um, Disney is so interested in how their characters and their stories can be experienced by kids in new and you know hopefully meaningful ways. Learning is something they are thinking about a lot for the future. Um, so that I think helped as well. So yeah, so the relationship started quite organically and then led to our first product. So we have a relationship with them for a few years. Um, and we decided on leveraging a product that is one of our best-selling products in our range called Electro Dough, which is electronic dough where kids can make circuits, learn about electricity, learn about problem solving, be really creative with dough, but using things like lights and sound and motors. So bring it to life in a kind of fundamentally kind of basic way but learn these really interesting skills which right. you know most four to six year olds don't know what electricity is 
So it's a lovely way for them to learn those kinds of things. Um, and we knew it was a great experience already. So we leveraged that product and that experience and basically decided that the Marvel property was a really great license because um, the new Marvel movie was coming out mm -hmm. at the same time, etc. Um, and also from a gender perspective, the Avengers and kind of Marvel are incredibly accessible to all genders. So mm -hmm. girls and boys love Captain America pretty equally. Mm -hmm. Apparently Incredible Hulk is the most popular. Like girls love Hulk. Um, so that was really important to us as well. So ultimately what happens is kids basically learn how to build and create circuits. They learn about electricity and electronics by going through missions with right. their favorite characters. Mm -hmm. They have to solve problems that those characters need. Like Hulk needs to build a wall and he has to smash it. In order to smash it, you have to make a circuit. And you only know you made the circuit right if the sound of Hulk happens when you smash it. So there's this really nice cause and effect that happens. There's success, there's reward. It's malleable, it's fun, it's familiar. It's not scary to parents. Um, so yeah, so that was our first experience. And there's a digital experience that takes you through that, a kind of, we call it like a digital storybook. Right. And is that going to be a series of uh, Marvel products that are going to come out? So we do have more products in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Some might be that, some might be others, but we do have a product roadmap that we will and, and, and is that I mean is that I mean fundamentally that's a marketing hack right in terms of bringing in a brand like like Marvel yeah I, I, you know I mean it's it's uh, when you get right down to it it's clearly working is that yeah do you see that as a longer term strategy that you would look at with other brands as well yeah I think there's a lot of I mean again we're an experienced brand and there are tons of amazing businesses that have characters and narratives and things that when you put us with them the two are bigger than the sum of their parts, right? right? And that, yes, awareness. That's the most important thing right now is awareness. Because I, I, if I if I sort of pretend to be a VC for a second, mm -hmm. and the question that VCs love to ask, you know, is how does how do these things become sort of billion dollar sectors and billion mm -hmm. dollar companies? Mm -hmm. For for STEM product companies to scale out to, to the sort of size of a Lego or a Hasbro, yeah. do you think they have to sort of make make more and more moves like these? Um, to get like as in is is, is it a, is a marketing um function a marketing sort of force multiplier a thing you need as well to build um, a business i mean i think whether it's in this industry or another industry i think partnerships in general are always a great way of reaching new audiences mm -hmm. that might be similar to your audience you just haven't talked to them yet so i think partnerships is a great way to scale absolutely in terms of awareness building um the challenge is is making sure that the you know, us as a business are super clear about what our values are, who the right partners are, and who our customer is to make sure we're doing the right partnerships. Because I think you can get very seduced by, you know, doing anything with any partner or, you know, co-branding something very sloppily. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that works at all. Mm -hmm. I think it's super transparent. You know, customers can see through that immediately. If the experience itself doesn't deliver on your positioning, then yeah, right. the partnership was a complete waste of time. Um, you raised a Series A round in 2017? Yeah. 2017? Yes. Yes. No, 2018. 2018. Yeah. Um, which was about $4.2 million, I think? Yeah, 4.5. Um, yeah. 4.5. Mm -hmm. Very important. Um, from a number of different investors. And yeah. I, I think it was very impressive to see because I think a lot of STEM companies, you know, particularly sort of the, the, the earlier stage ones, have definitely struggled yeah. um, to raise finance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why, what do those investors see in you? Yeah, I think, so we were very, not fortunate, but I think we've done a really good job finding investors that share 
our values and our vision, which is super, super important. So one of our investors is from the gaming industry. You know, our digital platform and the experiences we create are very kind of game-like experiences, and they bring a lot of expertise in terms of that that kind of interest and value. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our investors are from the education space. Again, they see education as this wide, you know, network of all different kinds of businesses that are trying to ultimately help kids learn in different kinds of ways. And they've invested in everything from digital to physical products. Um, and then some of our investors have been with us since, you know, we had cardboard boxes and stickers in our right. house. Um, so I think the, the I think a few things that are really important to kind of what that round was about. One, we have a range of experiences. Mm-hmm. We're not a one product business. And that range is connected to age, it's connected to price, and it's c- connected to curriculum. I think that idea of range and accessibility is actually still really different in this space. There's a lot of expensive products that are hard for everyday families to rationalize, quite frankly. Um, I think range in itself also, because we can bring newness to market on a regular basis and really kind of create these ecosystems, I think was also super appealing. Um, And then I think there's the kind of softer side. I mean, we're called Tech Will Save Us. We're a mission-driven business that fundamentally believes in kids being these optimistic change makers for the future. That's a good thing to be a part of (laughs) for the right people, right? Not everyone believes in that, but I think in an industry where there is so much stuff and lots of things that aren't doing that, Mm -hmm. there is a space for some purpose-driven businesses that have a very, very specific focus on kids and learning, but in the space of technology to have a space. Has any of that been dulled or numbed by the proliferation of tablets? Because when you look at sort of coding kits, it kind of harks back to a time when, you know, kids actually had computers with physical keyboards, right? Which is not the case now at all. Do, do you not, notice any difference in, I suppose, the newer cohorts of customers and, and, and how they're relating to your product from that perspective? Um, I think I think the thing that's become more apparent to us, especially through like user testing and product development and, 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 and new products that are coming out, is that increasingly the tablet is, well, one, it's just a part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And actually in some of the new products that we're launching this year, the tablet is literally there when you're doing the things and no parent saw it as screen time no kid really recognized it as screen time because it becomes kind of ubiquitous it just becomes a part of an experience and a journey because there's so much familiarity with using it one and i think also because we can create quite complex interactions that are seamless which is means that it's not about a screen or a physical, it's just about an experience of doing this thing I want to do. So I think it's changed in the sense that the screen is increasingly disappearing in the experience, which for me is a good thing, at least in our approach to how we use the screen. It's it's there, it's fundamental, but it's not the focus, it's not the reason you're doing it. One of the reasons we started this podcast series was we found that a huge number of people, investors, analysts, etc., didn't have a good enough understanding of what was going on mm-hmm. in, in our space. Because again, there's, there tends to be not a huge amount of data mm-hmm. uh, that's available to, to, to outsiders. What do you think is the one thing that investors have been most surprised to learn mm-hmm. about your business or, or, or your part of the sector? 
that, that, <sighs> that, that they wouldn't normally be able to find out. That's interesting. Um, I think there are, I think there are a few things. I think one is the growth of the education toy space is always a little bit bigger than everyone anticipated. Hmm. You know, it grew at something like 12% last year. Like it keeps growing. Versus the overall toy market, which I think probably shrunk about 2%. Exactly. So I think that there's a kind of, maybe it's not surprising, but a kind of moment of, oh, that's interesting that Mm -hmm. that's, consistently keeps growing and growing and growing, right? Whereas, you know, action figures and, you know, compounds can go up and down. Mm. Educational toys seems to be growing. And, you know, it kind of makes sense logically in times of, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the economy and there's lots of unknowns. Mm. There will still be a desire of people to invest in their kids. They're not going to stop investing in their kids. They just might do it more consciously or intentionally. Mm. So I think that's, always a really kind of good thing to point out. Um, I think maybe the other thing that is really interesting or important or exciting is the direct relationship we can have with our customers. The way that we can take customers through a journey, you know, whether you bought your product in Amazon or whether you bought it in Target or whether you bought it from us, you come to our digital space to find the content, the coding, the community, the resources, and ultimately we can take you on a journey. And by doing that, we can hopefully take you on a long journey through lots of different kinds of experiences and over time have lots of different offers Mm -hmm. for you. And I think, I don't know if that's surprising, but it's appealing Mm -hmm. because of that direct relationship with the customer, which again, this space doesn't have much of. For digital businesses, yes. For physical toy businesses, not so much. Um, so I think that's always a, a kind of key discussion point. And my final question, if you were starting Tech Will Save Us in 2019 yeah. instead of 2012, yeah. what would you be doing differently? Oh, that's like the, it's always, I mean, there's two answers. One is there is a part of me which doesn't like to think, you know, I, I wouldn't have done anything differently because I needed to do all of the things I did to get to where we are and we needed to do those things, you know, so there's that answer to the question. Um, I think the the main thing, and again, I don't know that I could have known this sooner, I would have invested in more experienced talent sooner. Mm. I think that's a probably a very common thing, which makes me feel a little bit like a statistic, but but I think I, we we could have done that much sooner. Mm. And I think that would have been really beneficial on lots of different levels. Mm-hmm. So, Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bethany Kobe, CEO of Tech Will Save Us from or for your views on future focused families. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on Kitech. Thank you.